When a lot of investors think about how much risk they can take as an investor, they often try to forecast how they think they would feel in a hypothetical future situation. So sitting here today, they try to say, how would I feel if the stock market fell 30%? Would I be okay with that? Would that scare me? And then they try to set up their investment portfolio around that projection of how they think they would feel. There's a lot of evidence when people do that. They're not actually accurately projecting how they would feel in that situation. They're more or less extrapolating how they feel today. From Collaborative Fund, that is one of the best finance writers in the country, former Wall Street Journal and Motley Fool columnist Morgan Housel. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, Morgan offers practical ways to determine your actual risk tolerance and perhaps help avoid the investing disease of fear and greed. And listen to find out where you fall on Morgan's spectrum of financial dependence to financial independence. Plus, should you invest in a hybrid fixed indexed annuity? Is an indexed universal life insurance policy right for you? Well, now we got a guy. Joe Schweiger, CFP, joins us today to answer your questions. Now, here are two guys who are entirely dependent on those two guys for everything of value in today's show. Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. Hey, Alan, you know what time it is, right? It's that time to talk to somebody way smarter than us. Way. Way. I'm super excited this week. <laughs> yes, me too. Oh, we got Morgan Housel on the line. He's a partner at uh, the Collaborative Fund, uh, former columnist of um, The Motley Fool and The Wall Street Journal. One of my favorite white, white papers. I'm a huge fan of uh, behavioral finance. You know this. I do know that. And yeah. uh, he wrote a white paper called The Psychology of Money. Um, so I'm excited to talk to Morgan about that. Morgan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Hey, can, um, in a little bit of background, um, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, kind of where where you came from, where you're at, and where you're going? Yeah, well, I started as a financial writer uh, in 2007, writing for The Motley Fool. And, of course, that was an interesting time to start uh, writing about financial markets. I was covering banking and kind of the macro economy in 2007 going into 2008. And that's, of course, when the financial crisis really started heating up. Things started getting really, really dicey in the banking sector and the economy that I was covering. And that, you know, I, I don't know if I knew it at the time, but I think that kind of started a journey for me of realizing that what happened to banks, what happens in the economy in 2008, 2009, couldn't really be explained in a financial textbook. There wasn't much that was uh, you know, taught in universities and finance courses that would have uh, led you to believe, like that would have taught you why the financial crisis happened. So that for me just kind of began a journey of going down, thinking more about behavioral finance. And that if there weren't formulas and big academic ideas that could explain financial crisis, it meant that it was more about behavior and what was going on inside of people's heads and their biases and their relationship with greed and fear. So that just became kind of a passion of mine, thinking about researching and writing behavioral finance that I've done for the past 10 or 12 years uh, as columnist for the Wall Street Journal for a long time, with Motley Fool, now that collaborative fund. You, you know, you start this white paper out um, looking at two different investors. You know, you, you have this nice little old lady in New York City. Um, she was a secretary her whole life. Um, ends up dying with $7 million. And you have another individual uh, that was a former vice chairman at Merrill Lynch, you know, one of the biggest investment banking firms in the world, uh, retires in his 40s and then ends up filing for bankruptcy. And so you look at one person that doesn't have any experience whatsoever when it comes to investing that ends up leaving a small fortune uh, to a charity. And you have another individual that probably has more education 
information networks in the world of finance than most um, and ends up broke. That is the world of finance, my friend. I mean, <laughs> right? Uh, it's That's like, right. You're not going to have a little, you know, someone that doesn't have any experience do open heart surgery for you, right? Right. You know, there's there's virtually no other fields in which those stories exist. You don't see them in sports. It's impossible to think that you know an amateur off the street could play one on one with LeBron and just and, and not only beat him but absolutely crush him. It's just it just it just wouldn't happen. Or just someone from off the street, you know, with no education, could perform a successful root canal in their neighbor. It just would not ever happen. There's no scenario in which it can happen. But you, this happens in investing. And the point that I made in the paper was, uh, why does that happen? I think it, you know some people would say, oh, because there's luck in investing. Some people get lucky. Some people get unlucky. But I think it's more than that. It's that. Be, it's that. What matters most is that uh, successful investing is not necessarily about what you know. It's about how you behave. And behavior is not something that you can teach, even to really smart people who go to the best schools and work for the best companies and have the best networks. Behavior is something that is kind of ingrained in you, often from birth. It's just kind of a part of your personality. It has to do with the culture that you were raised in, the family that you were raised in, the generation and the country that you that you grew up in. All these things that I think are not only um, often outside of our control, but absolutely vary from person to person. And so, you know, when, when that is kind of the base of the pyramid, no matter how smart you are, how much education you have, if you don't get the behavior part right in investing, then that intelligence and that education isn't going to matter. So, like, the, getting your behavior right is kind of the base of the pyramid of good investing and handling your finances. So that, to me, is where I've always wanted to spend all of my mental bandwidth as an investor is trying to nail that part of it on, under the idea that if I don't get that part right, nothing else is going to matter. But let me ask you this. It's, <clears throat> I think most investors are overconfident, and they feel that maybe they, they, there's someone different, right? I am a better investor than the average person. And, but the, well, how do we get to the root of the problem is, my, I, I guess, my point is that, all right, well, you know, you can follow an algorithm – um, you can look at certain charts, and this is how you invest. But when you know, you know what hits the fan, most people won't be able to stomach it. So, right. how do we cure this disease <laughs> of the human nature investing? That, that may take a few more centuries. <laughs> <laughs> the unfortunate, but I think honest answer is it's very difficult. I would love to tell you, oh, all you have to do is follow A, B, and C, and then you figured it out, and everything's going to be okay. It's just plug in the data, and you, and you, you know, get your answer. But it's not like that. These are behavioral biases that have been ingrained in humans for hundreds of thousands of years, and they're not something you can get rid of overnight. But to me, I think there are a couple things that you can do, starting with just being aware of them. Even if you can't overcome them, just being aware of how you think and how other people think and how other people, including yourself, are likely to react in certain situations is really valuable. And I'll just give you one point. When a lot of investors think about uh, – when they think about how much risk they can take as an investor, they often try to uh, – forecast how they would how they think they would feel in a hypothetical future situation so sitting here today they try to say how would i feel if the stock market fell 30 percent would i be okay with that would that scare me and then they try to set up their investment portfolio around that projection of how they think they would feel and i think there's a lot of evidence when people do that they're not actually accurately projecting how they would feel in that situation they're more or less extrapolating how they feel today 
So right now we've had you know a nine or ten year bull market. A lot of investors feel pretty good. When people are thinking about how they might feel during the next bear market, during the next recession, they're often just projecting their their optimism that they have today. The reverse is true in 2009 when a lot of investors, when they were trying to anticipate how they might feel in the future, were just extrapolating their pessimism and their fear that they were holding in 2009. And then so uh, one solution for that, if you know, that's maybe too strong a word, but one thing that I think is helpful for people to do is rather than trying to project how you might feel in the future, it's to study how you behave and how you responded in the past. So if you panicked and sold your stocks in 2009, as a lot of investors did, that's probably a pretty good indication of how, how it's going to feel the next time. No matter how much you think you've learned or how much you think or how much you say, I won't do that again, I've learned my lesson, I think the odds are that for most people, not everyone, but for most people, the odds are that, no, it's not that you haven't learned your lesson. It's that that fear is just kind of an ingrained part of your personality and therefore you're likely to do it again next time. And that's okay. Just set your portfolio up today to work around that. If you have a lower risk tolerance than most people and you can't stomach losing 30% of your money, let's just have a higher allocation of bonds and cash. That's okay to do. So I think just being aware of how you reacted in the past and assuming it's going to mimic how you likely respond in the future is one thing that we can do to better uh, situate ourselves around our biases. So it's not that we're hopeless around these things. They're very difficult to cure. I think a lot of them are basically impossible to, to cure. But there are things that we can do to try to better understand them, just try to tilt the odds a little bit better in our favor. We've been in a bull market almost for the last 10 years. And if you look at someone that had $100,000, if they lose 30% on $100,000, you know, yeah, that's going to hurt, but it's thirty grand. Or if I had $50,000. Now you fast forward to some of those individuals over the past 10 years, that $100,000, if they were a diligent saver, is now a million dollars or a million five. And that 30% hit on a million five or a million bucks is completely different. So I think when the market does correct, I think we'll find a whole new paradox of individuals that are, are, are going to need your services and reading your literature on behavioral finance. Um, I, I think that's yeah. I think that's true. I mean, just I think to summarize the, the the point that you're making is that so many of these. It's very it's intuitive to think that you will contextualize a bear market or a recession in percentage terms, but people usually do it in raw dollar terms. Right. So thirty percent, thirty was thirty grand ten years ago. Now it's maybe three hundred grand because you've had portfolio growth. Even though it's the same magnitude of decline, it's going to hurt so much more. And I think the reason why is because people kind of contextualize those losses just something that they can really wrap their head around, like their salary or their mortgage payment. So if you lose 300 grand, you start saying, how many years do I need to work to make that up? And it's very different at lower levels of money, but even though it's the same percentage, it just becomes, when the numbers get larger, you start contextualizing them in ways that just add to the amount of fear and greed and that cycle that leads to bad decisions. You, you know, I like your quote in your article um, with Harry Markowitz, right? Nobel Prize winning economist. And he's like, well, you know, he came up with the efficient frontier. And for those of you that don't know, it's like a certain level of risk should maximize a certain return. It kind of gives you a pie chart of how much money you should have in stocks and bonds and so on. But Harry, right, he came up with it. And he's like, well, you know, I visualize uh, my grief if the stock market went down or went up. And, it, you know, he's like, well, how would I feel if it went down? So, you know what, I'm just going to go 50-50. 
So, right, this is the guy who won the Nobel Prize for creating one of the most, you know, really mathematically complex system of how exactly you should allocate your money between bonds and, and cash. And for his own money, he didn't even use it. The person who made it himself and won the Nobel Prize didn't even use it, use it himself, which I think is an indication that there's a lot that is taught in finance that we pay a lot of attention to. And a lot of stuff is useful, but it was, it was developed in an academic setting mainly just to be intellectually stimulating uh, for academics, for them to create something that was mathematically precise and mathematically very elegant. But in the real world, once you layer over the behaviorism that really affects people in the real world as they actually invest, it becomes much less relevant. Even to the person that invented it doesn't use it for his own money. And I think just a takeaway from that is when people are thinking about our own money, this is probably especially true for professional investors and financial advisors, that really simple techniques and ideas and rules of thumb and back of the envelope, how does this feel? Does this make you feel better? Do you sleep better at night if we do this? is a really effective way to think about it rather than trying to get deep into a financial textbook of this is how we should think about this topic, this is how we should, uh, you know, this is how we should allocate the portfolio based off of these models and our forecasts, what do we think the economy is going to do this year, what do we think interest rates are going to do this year. It's, it's a, to me, it's, it's much better to just say, you know, I, I've always thought about, I, I'm not trying to maximize for returns in investing, which might sound uh, weird. Well, why, why would I not want to maximize for returns? But really what I'm trying to do is maximizing for how well I sleep at night. And I think most investors, if you really get them into a corner, that's, kind of, that's, how, that's what they want to do as well. And uh, because I'm just trying to maximize for how I sleep at night, I don't think about how can I maximize my returns or what is the economy going to do this year? What's the stock market going to do this year? All I'm thinking about is when I look at my portfolio, does it feel good to me? Do I look at it and say, yeah, that feels about right. Even if some, some other advisor might look at it and say, well, you should have more here, you should have more of this. I, I look at it and say, no, this helps me. I, I feel good about this intuitively. I feel good about the cushion that I have, and I feel good that even in, in all these bad scenarios that I can conjure up in my head, I'd still be okay. That's all I want to do for investing. And it's very simple, and it kind of comes from the gut, comes from the heart of just this makes me feel good. But I think that's actually a very effective way for people to think about their investments. And that's not to uh, poo-poo a lot of the academic breakthroughs that we've made in, in finance and it's not to poo-poo a data-driven uh, and, 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 and heavily investment uh, uh, approach that is backed by evidence. That's certainly not what it is. But I think there's a, there's a lot to be said for people keeping their financial decisions as simple as possible and doing it with the idea that you're just doing this to, um, uh, to reduce stress and worry and sleep better at night rather than maximize returns. So, do you have the investing disease of fear and greed? How did you react in the last recession? What will you do when this bull becomes a bear? Pure Financial's Director of Research, Brian Perry, CFP, CFA, has a comprehensive video guide to bear markets. You'll find it in the show notes for today's episode. Learn the history of market declines, what causes them, their average recovery times, why bear market predictions are so hard to make, and some investing strategies to help you prepare for the next bear. Check it out in the show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Let's hear some more from Morgan Housel. Big Al's got a question this time. I do like your idea that uh, maybe instead of a risk tolerance questionnaire or how would you feel if the market goes down 30%, look how you acted last time. 
but I, yeah. I, I heard you recently talking about millennials, and of course they don't have any history, a lot of them. A lot of them have not, maybe they, they saw their parents right, go through the Great Recession, but they haven't yet. And I think you have a pretty interesting perspective there that maybe they ought to go a little bit con- more conservative than most of us would, would recommend just because they haven't had that experience yet. Yeah, I think that's true. If you are, you know, if you are younger than, uh, you know, probably 32, 33 years old, you, you never experience a significant downturn in the U.S. market. You can take that a step further. Uh, you look at a country like Australia, they haven't had a recession in 27 years. So you have the majority of even professional investors in that country have never really experienced a big economic downturn. And that will certainly have an effect when the next downturn comes because it's going to be a completely new paradigm for you versus someone who uh, you know invested through the dot-com bubble and then through 9-11 and then through the financial crisis in 08 has a completely different perspective. I think it's important to point out that just because the person who's been through many declines has experienced something different, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're smarter or wiser. It just means, like, it's possible that, you know, there's always the, there's a known thing that people who lived through the Great Depression were were way overly conservative in their investments for the remainder of their lives. They, by and large, shunned the stock market even when the stock market was booming. They really wanted just kind of bonds and cash and safety. Or you can look at a country, like a lot of countries in Europe that were bombed to rubble and disintegrated during World War II. A lot of those populations remained very conservative for the rest of their lives just because they had been through so much trauma that kind of left a lot of scar tissue with them. And uh, so it's possible that people who uh, lived through uh, the dot-com bubble and the financial crisis will be too conservative for the rest of their lives. So just because they've experienced it doesn't mean that they're necessarily wiser. I think it's appropriate for every investor to realize that the experience that you have, what you've experienced in your life, is probably a fraction of what the economy and the stock market is capable of producing for the rest of your life. And just being open to way to far more situations and scenarios than you've experienced in your past. And it's important to realize that because most people, when they think about their future, they by and large extrapolate the past from their own life and assume that that's what their future is, is going to be like. So it's just a kind of a, a, a plea, I guess, for investors to talk to other investors who've experienced uh, different scenarios, particularly uh, investors who are either much older or much younger than them and have a, a much different view about where the economy is going and what the stock market is capable of doing. And one example of that are baby boomers who came of age in the 70s and 80s experienced a lot of inflation during that period. My generation, the millennials, have, you know, have really never experienced inflation above about 2%. So we just have a very different view of what inflation is capable of doing, where a lot of the millennial or a lot of the baby boomers will remember gas lines and mortgages that were 14% interest rates. And my generation doesn't. And I think if we just talk to each other a little bit more and try to gain a more open mind about what we've experienced, that helps both of us understand the possibilities of what the world is capable of doing next. Yeah, without question. Looking at your last blog, I thought was, was fairly interesting, too. You know, you're looking for, you know, dependent on cash to financial independent. And there was several different stages that you went through. You know, you could have complete dependence. And I guess what that's someone like Big Al asking for for, for change, <laughs> asking me for a couple of bucks a, every day. That's a stage one. <laughs> yes. I'm completely, yeah, you're, completely dependent you're, upon you're you, level, You're level you, zero. Usually that's for children under 15, but <laughs> yes. make an exception <laughs> yes. for me. Oh, what well, <laughs> 
This was very, very interesting. And how you came up with these um, the, the, the 16 levels, just tell our listeners a little bit of, uh, behind the genesis of the paper. It's like, all right, well, here. Well, uh, um, I, 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 I guess I've never read anything like this. So um, t- tell me a little bit about what, what your thought process was. Yeah, yeah, good question. Because for me, um, you know, why do people invest? We're all investing so that we can have more money. And that's kind of a blunt way to say it and kind of sounds too materialistic. But I think that's the point. Most people, when they think about money, it's in a materialistic way of I want more money so I can have more stuff. And not necessarily more stuff, you're saving so that you can take care of yourself during retirement, send your kids to more school, uh, you know, so so you can send your kids to college. But for me, more money and the reason that I invest has always been around gaining control over my time and gaining a higher level of independence. That's really all I wanted. All I want for investing is to be in a situation where I can wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to do what I want today. And by and large, that doesn't necessarily mean retirement. I know there's a big movement about the early retirement movement. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of excitement around that. But I think most people, including myself, would wake up in the morning and say, I want to work. That's what I want to do today. But I'm going to choose the work that I do. I'm going to choose who I do it for. I'm going to choose how much of it I can do. Uh, I, I might go out and take a lower paying job that I like better because I have a certain level of independence from my savings. It's just gaining control over your time. And I think a lot of that stems from some of the work in positive psychology, which is kind of the study of happiness. It kind of shows that you know, people can get very accustomed to their material situation uh, on, on either ends. If you're very poor or very wealthy, if you have a small house or a huge mansion, people get accustomed to that stuff pretty quickly, particularly once you're above a certain level of basic comfort. So you get accustomed to whatever you have. But having control over your time, if you can dictate your schedule and, who, and when you're going to go to work and who you're going to work for and what kind of work you're going to do, if you can own your schedule, that is something that will pretty much always bring you happiness when you have it and will always feel miserable when you don't have it. And there are a lot of very wealthy people, multimillionaires, that have no control over their time, and many of them are miserable. And there are a lot of people who you would not consider particularly wealthy, but they own their day, they own their calendar, and those people on average tend to be pretty happy. So that's always what I've wanted to do is thinking about money, not in terms of how much, how much stuff can I buy with this, but what level of independence does this buy for me? So that's always how I've kind of framed uh, wealth in my own head. And so this this article was just kind of uh, just just kind of putting that down on paper. Like, what do some of those levels look like? And there's a lot of different levels. Um, you know, financial independence is kind of it's often portrayed as black and white. You're either working or you're not working. You're either uh, you're either in a job or you're retired. But I think there's a lot of different levels of you know someone who has uh, you know just enough savings that they can take a lower paying job than they otherwise might have to to cover their student loans or their mortgage. Like, that's a level of independence. Once you've reached a, a certain amount of comfort with your social status to where you don't feel the need to buy a flashy car or wear flashy clothes just to prove yourself, that's a level of independence. Like That's a burden lifted off you. So there's a lot of different levels to go down. And uh, you know, most people, I think, will never reach a level in which they feel completely independent. I think no matter where you are, you're always going to rely on others. That's, that's, that's kind, of, kind of a part of human nature. But that's always how I viewed uh, money in general is just how can I how can this free me up a little more so that I can wake up every morning and say I can do whatever I want today. No, that is such a good point, and I think a lot of people need to take it a little bit of a step back and and, and think about that. Um, I think individuals have this quest for wealth, but they really don't understand what wealth is. Uh, they might be thinking of a dollar figure, they might be thinking of a fancy house or or a nice car, and they're collecting stuff. 
And it's like, all right, well, here, they, they, they see a guy, and I, <clears throat> I forget what article this was that you wrote, but all right, well, here, um, they, they see an individual with a $200,000 car. Oh, that person must be wealthy. I want to get to that point. And then the person driving the car is thinking, hey, they're thinking I'm really cool, but in actuality, they're like, well, no, I don't really think they're cool. I'm just kind of envious of a, a, a certain status. Um, yeah. Right, and it, it, it's like, well, if they take maybe a little bit of time and truly think about what wealth means to them, I think the the whole paradigm of shift of you know this retirement crisis and all the other BS that you hear and all you know the millennials don't save anything and the baby boomers are breaking the system and the age wave and all this negativity. I mean, all that is is trying to sell stuff, but if they take you know. Well, Al and I work with individuals um, that, that don't have millions of dollars, and they're happiest people in the world. Al and I work with people that have millions of dollars, and it's like they're miserable. They, I mean, it's like, right. what the hell are you doing? And then right. the people with, the, with with very little money, they're like, man, I wish I had millions because then I could be happy. Bullsh- you know, <laughs> you're just going to end up being more miserable. It's a, re- it's a really tough situation. And one thing I think is important to point out is that it really is different for everyone. The lifestyle that I choose to live, some people might say, I would, I would be miserable if I did that. And then that's fine. Like my, my, you know, I've, I found a way for my family that makes us happy and has it worked with us. But if it's different for you, well, then great. Like, like there, there's no formula for this that you can say, just do X and you'll be happy. You really have to find out what works for you. But I think by and large, for the vast majority of people, uh, just to reiterate that focusing your goals and your pursuits on having more freedom of time rather than more uh, more quantity of, of Fix, goods yeah. is, 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 is something that I think is, is a, a big step in the right direction towards actually becoming happier with your money. Morgan, you're awesome. I really appreciate your time. I kept you late, but um, I, we, we could talk about this for four hours. So um, thank you so much for joining us today. It's, it, it's been a real treat. This has been fun. Thanks. Hey, um, that's Morgan Housel, folks. You can check them out at morganhousel.com or collaborativefund.com. And we'll put all of that stuff in our show notes. And hopefully we can get you back on here soon. If you'd like to read the transcript of this speakerphone interview with Morgan Housel, check out the show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. And hey, don't forget, we're choosing the winner of our $100 Amazon gift card on Friday, August 17th. That's 2018, in case you're listening to this many months from now. All you've got to do to enter to win is fill out my five-minute podcast survey, also linked in the show notes for this episode. Let me know your thoughts on what we should talk about on Your Money, Your Wealth, who we should talk to, and what you do and don't like about the podcast. And thank you so much for the responses we've already gotten. You're giving us some great feedback, and we really appreciate it. Most of you, or not most, I think we only have four listeners, so all four (laughs) of you responded nicely to this. And so um, some of the things that you want to hear about is... I heard annuities, even though Joe doesn't like them. (laughs) So guess what, folks? We're going to talk a little bit about annuities because we had a few email questions come through in the past couple of weeks, and I've been ignoring them. Uh, But we have Joe Schwager. He's swagging his way through the (laughs) office lately. He's a brand new employee up here at Financial Advisors. He's a certified financial planner, and he's our insurance specialist. And so I brought him into the studio today to answer some of these hot questions on annuities. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Happy to be here. Are you happy? I am. Are you a little nervous? Uh, 
Don't worry about first, it. First time on the radio. First, so. <laughs> first time, long time? It yeah. seems like he'll bite, but I swear he won't. <laughs> hey, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. What's your story, my friend? Yeah, so I've been here now going on a month, pretty much brand new. A month. So last six and a half years, I worked for a general agency in the insurance industry, so basically a insurance brokerage. We specialize in mainly fixed products, so a lot of index universal life and fixed index annuities. So, you know, making the transition over here, I completed my CFP certification end of last year and wanted to become more of a holistic planner. And um, not sell indexed annuities, or do you still want to do that on the side? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know we're fee only, so I actually have never sold one. I was usually helping. Uh, you were just a guy behind the guy. So they yeah. had questions and say, yeah. hey, could you help me with this particular product? How does it work? And then you would break it down for them. And you would say, here, this is exactly how it works. Here's the caps. Here's the spreads. Here's how the indexing works. You're not really invested in the S&P 500 index, sir or ma'am. You're actually invested in a long-term bomb with a, um, you know, an option on it. And then they'll be like, really? I thought we were actually invested in the S&P 500 index? Exactly. Would that happen? Exactly. So and then the, they would say, well, what's the commission on it? Okay, sounds good. Thank you very much. Yeah, commission. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Not really. Uh, I'm going to have Joe stick around here for another segment because I got some um, other email questions in regards to universal life and annuities and all sorts of good stuff. And so I want uh, our, our um, young Flanagan, um, Joe Schwager, certified financial planner, barely um, out of the womb here um, and on the main stage. You're, you were a professional hockey player almost, too, weren't you? Uh, I had a brief stint in an exhibition camp. but A brief stint in an exhibition camp? <laughs> About 10 days. 10 days? <laughs> hey, man, that's you got the show. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. Okay, here we go, Joe. i got some questions for you. Um, let's see. i got two for you. Do you want to start with um, – let's do this one here. I am thinking about – or dear Joe and Al <laughs> – I am thinking about putting my life savings into an annuity that is supposed to pay me 8% signing bonus and 7% compound interest over 10-year period with no risk of losing my initial investment. Are you getting that, Joe? So far, yep. Okay. Uh, The product is casually referred to as a hybrid fixed indexed annuity. And um, I'm, I don't think we need to share the name of the insurance company, but if you want to know it, it's a Secured Benefit uh, in Income Annuity uh, through sub- Secured Benefit Insurance. You heard of them? Uh, sounds familiar. Okay, yeah. sure. All right. Uh, so here's, here's her question. Exactly how is this initial investment guaranteed? The salespeople call it a guaranteed contract. It looks like it's covered by my state, and that really helps my peace of mind. But I'm wondering if there's a connection that goes beyond my state. I'm looking for more protection. Uh, that is, if more protection is appropriate. Anything you might add to my understanding of the risk of the initial investment would be greatly appreciated. So here's the crux of this. So she's putting her life savings into an annuity contract. And the salesperson is saying that she will get an 8% signing bonus. So here. Put money into the contract, I will give you 8% just because I'm a good person. And I'll also guarantee you 7% over the next 10 years. True, false. Got it. Well, we'll start with the fact that 
the insurance company is saying that they'll let them put their life savings into the uh, annuity. So right there, first and foremost, every insurance company does have compliance. So they will most likely not accept the full amount of everything you have. So, but they could also BS on the app. Technically, yeah, they could. Okay, just they saying. could definitely say they're worth a little bit more. All right. Uh, second part, yeah, a lot of times fixed index annuities or index annuities will have different, you know, promotions or I like to think of them as bells and whistles. You know, eight percent premium bonus, the seven percent compounding roll up. Really, what they're doing is they're taking the money that they're they're giving the insurance company and they're investing that in the appropriate bond portfolio that's going to last for that client's lifetime. So, you know, by saying that they're going to give them 8% and then the 7% roll, really what they're going to do is take away on the potential for them to accumulate in that product. So if income is the important component that you're looking for, you know, an indexed annuity can potentially do that for you down the road. So, but this is all BS, Joe, to be honest with you. So she's thinking that she gets free money of 8% just by putting the money into it. It's not free money. The insurance company is not going to say, you know what, just because we're a good company, I'm going to give you 8%. How yeah. does that actually work? Break that down so for So another part of the premium bonus, and a lot of times when people are looking at annuities, there's really two accounts that you need to think of. The first one is the actual cash account, which you'd be able to walk away with. The other account is basically a Fathom account that's only used to calculate what the income payment would be down the road. So if they're giving you 8%, you definitely want to look to see if that's going to be in the cash account or if it's going to be in the Fathom account that's going to basically calculate how your income will uh, be produced down the road. So a Fathom account, what you're basically stating, there's two different types of ledgers within this type of product. There's yeah. a cash value, mm-hmm. right? And then there's an income benefit rider. And this is what she's confused on, is that they're going to give her an 8% bonus up front. So she has to be aware of where that 8% bonus is actually going to go into, what ledger that this is going to be applied to. Exactly. Right? And then the 7% compound interest over 10 years. She's not getting a 7% compound interest rate over 10 years. She just isn't. Yes, I would 100% agree with you. Most likely that 7% compounding interest is going to be in the income account. Of course it is. Only used to calculate what the payout will be once you elect to annuitize or start start the income stream. Once you turn on the the rider. So here's here's a prime example of why people get taken advantage of on these products. Is that, okay, well now I have $100,000. She thinks that she's going to get a guaranteed 7% interest rate. No wonder why she's looking at the state for help. Because it's like, wow, this sounds probably too good to be true. How can someone guarantee me 7% interest and not necessarily have any other type of protections? What are they doing? How are they investing it? Right? This is a really good rate of return. So what they're basically doing, it's all smoke and mirrors. That 7% is not a true return. So if she holds this over 10 years at 7%, Joe, her money's going to what? Double, right? Rule of 72? Yep. Rule of so let's say years. she puts her life savings of $100,000 into the account, the account balance will be $200,000 roughly in 10 years if she gets a 7% compound return. But that $200,000, she cannot take a distribution from that. She can't take money from the account, can she? That's correct. So she'll be. there's also a withdrawal rate. So depend, that, say it grows to 200000 depending on your age, you have the withdrawal percentage. So then say that's 5%. She wouldn't be able to take out 200000 So it's She every, would be able to take out 10000 bucks. let's say, if it's 5%. Exactly. So, really, so let's say over <laughs> the next 10 years, she pulls out 5%. That's $10,000 a year. So now she's held that product for 20 years. What did she get out of the product? 
her principal back. Yep. Right? Because she took $10,000 out. She started with 100000 She put it into the product. She got this guaranteed 7%, which is BS. Ten years later, right, all of a sudden it grows to this magical 200000 <laughs> but she can't pull the $200,000 out. She can only pull 5% out. So now that's $10,000. Am I Is my math correct? Your, your I don't math, have a calculator. Your, your math is correct. All right, yeah. so now she's got $100,000. So she takes that $100,000 out, Right. So, or she takes the ten thousand dollars out. Ten thousand times ten years is what a hundred grand. So, how long has she had her money with that insurance company? So, after the ten years, twenty years, full of twenty years, yeah. what did she get back? Is her principal payments? Yep. So then she goes another ten years. She pulls out another ten thousand dollars per year. So now she pulls out two hundred thousand dollars. So she doubled her money. But how long did she have her money with the insurance company? That, at that time, thirty years. Thirty years. So you got to think of time value money calculations. Right? I mean, what's the internal rate of return on this? It's y- like maybe two point one percent. Yeah. And so they say, you know what? We'll give you this eight percent bonus. All they're doing is taking some of that money in a different ledger, and then it's all smoke and mirrors. That's correct. Yeah. Right. This listener so. is correct. Joe does not like annuities. <laughs> well, if she wants a guaranteed rate of return of 2%, then take that, take that nice product. Exactly. What it comes down to is, is exactly Understand that. what the hell you're buying, right? I would agree. Yeah. So, Anything else you want to add on that, Joe? <laughs> Yeah, I think that's you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. So, so I guess Joe's point earlier was saying if you wanted a guaranteed income stream, an annuity will will definitely give you that. But here's what bugs me: is that when someone is coming back in their interpretation of what this product does, is to say that they get this grandiose bonus, and then all of a sudden a guaranteed of seven percent compounded per year. It's like, who wouldn't want that? Every institution in the world would want to get a guaranteed 7%. It just doesn't exist. But that's how they're positioning or selling it. And it's, I don't know, it's kind of BS. Hey, if you've got an annuity question, a life insurance question, whatever, Joe Schweiger CFP is here now. And we can have Joe and Joe and Big Al answer it for you anytime you like. Actually, if you have any money question, I'm sitting in a building full of qualified, knowledgeable people with answers. And I know that any of them would love for me to pull them into this studio, put them up to this microphone, and answer you just like the Joes are doing. So let us know. Call 888-994-6257. That's 888-994-6257 with your money questions. Or email them to info at purefinancial.com. Go ahead. I'm waiting. All right, cool. We got another one. I have a guy. Everyone's got a a guy, guy, right? I got a guy. Um, I got a guy trying to get me to invest $300,000 into an index universal life insurance policy. All right? All right. I told him um, that for this $300,000, I wanted to sock it away for retirement and preserve its capital while not worrying about um, the underlying investment mix. I so I also don't want the task of having to pay attention to manage it. Although I told him I have no need for any life insurance, he's still pushing for me to buy um, into this because it's as good as an indexed annuity. <laughs> mm, <laughs> well, that's a that's, good, that's a really good benchmark compared. <laughs> All right, what say you, Joe Schwager? So you know, first and foremost, I'm going to have to say if you're not looking to buy life insurance, the the point of life insurance is to purchase a death benefit. So uh, if that's not really the the plan, then I wouldn't 
necessarily tell you to put all your money into an IUL. So why would um, an IUL, uh, for those of you who are keeping score, is an index universal life insurance policy? He's like, uh, Joe here is talking in jargon because he's just so much into the industry. Um, why would someone want to position an index universal life insurance policy and have some um, gentleman put $300,000 into that policy? What would, why would someone want to do that so with, with uh, you just said yeah. they, they, they shouldn't but why would they want to pitch can this? i guess can i guess sure what commission well there could be that involved there could be a little bit of definitely that. commission uh i mean you know the way that cash value life insurance works is there's a minimum and a maximum you can put in so really depending on the agent and how he's positioning the policy will really impact how much cash value can actually grow in it of course like i just mentioned though if you know death benefits not a main Concern, uh, life insurance policy in general would not be the best solution what, for what's you. What's the sales pitch? Give me the sales pitch. The sales pitch <laughs> you're the, for you're, an IUL. You are so. the life insurance agent, <laughs> right? And I am. I got three hundred grand burning a hole in my pocket. <clears throat> I don't need life insurance, Joe. But man, I don't know. I, I don't want to deal with my investments. And so, so, so the pitch behind an index universal life and the way that it works is, is this. Again, there's a minimum amount you can put in, which is basically what the insurance company is saying. This is what's going to pay for the death benefit that you'll receive. So I have a million-dollar policy. There's a minimum amount that I can put into that policy just to cover the cost of insurance. Exactly. And then there's also a maximum amount um, before it becomes a what a, max, which a modified endowment contract. Ex Look exactly. at me. <laughs> so, all right. So, so a modified endowment contract. Expert. So yeah, exactly. If all you right. put any more money than that, that then it becomes a basically a mech. Okay. So why um, you, you don't want a mech, or do you want a mech? I would say that you don't want a mech. There are times when a mech would make sense because it hurts the taxation of the cash value. Yes, exactly. So when you're pulling money out, it's going to be taxable like a qualified account. The only times I see that really worth doing is if it's some type of college planning pitch where you want to get money away from your expected family contribution. Ah, I see. So that's is, there's little sneaky, little sneaky ways to kind of um, hide Picture, things, hide assets. Shelter, yeah, Sh shelter. Oh. <laughs> hide shelter. <laughs> oh, interesting, Joe. Now the truth comes out. All right, so 300 grand. Into, so the, the whole pitch of this is what? So they can get tax-deferred growth, and then at some point they can grow the money, right? And then they can pull the money out tax-free. Ex is that the exactly. pitch? That's the way it works, yeah. You're putting in, if you put it in, if you structure it the right way, putting it up to that MEC line, basically the minimum amount of insurance comes out and then it sits into an account that basically shadows an indice. So what that means is the insurance company is buying long-term bonds and... They're buying what? Options? On op those. Exactly. So for instance, say that you give a $1,000 premium, $950 of that goes back into the bonds to grow you back up to $1,000, you know, pretty... Depending on the the economic makeup of what's happening in the industry, well, right? Yeah, it depends on what the options are costing. Yes, and then exactly options, budget, and you know, so that's going to be dependent on on what type of caps or participation rates they. So can when they're the saying, product. "Hey, you can invest in let's say the S and P five hundred within mm -hmm. this index," um, they're not investing in the S and P five hundred. They're not exactly. They're buying, they're, they're buying options. They're they have, buying options they have, on the S and P five hundred index. Exactly. And so, are they getting dividends from the S and P five hundred? They are not. They are not. Right. Yes. They're just getting the the appreciation of that index minus the cost. And then, if you overlay that within a life insurance contract, that adds a little bit more cost. Would you agree with that? 
I'm sorry, repeat that? So what they're doing is buying a long-term bond, and they're buying a call option within the long-term bond, and they're calling this an uh, S&P 500 index in some instances. Uh, yeah, so they're, well, they're taking the bond, they're putting that money aside to grow your basically your premium back up to where you put in. So if you put in 950, or if you put in 1,000, 950 grows up to 1,000, they take that $50, they buy options with it. And if they cost 50. If they cost, again, dependent, on, dependent on the economic situation. Sure, if it's a volatile if, market, yep. if the markets are going south, so, it's going to cost you a little bit more than that. Exactly. So the pitch is to say, all right, well, here, we can grow your money. You're never going to lose money because they're in bonds. Never se. lose money due to market volatility is, is the correct way to See, say yeah, that. I like your honesty. Thank yeah. you for that. <laughs> so never lose money. Due to what? Market, Market volatility. volatility. Of course, if you know insurance charges can go up, there's other things that can happen inside the contract. It's important to look through that whole contract and the whole um, illustration to see what the guarantees are and how long that actually is, is going to last, what they're illustrating at. There, there's a number of factors that go into how an illustration plays out and what is actually being sold to you. So it's, it's important to definitely look at that and not just have an insurance agent say, hey, no, again, Upside potential, no loss. You, you got to be careful with that, right? And if it's in a a, a wrapper of, um, and why someone that doesn't need life insurance, why they would get pitched this, or why they would get presented that maybe that's too strong a word, why they would get presented this solution in this particular person's scenario is to say, hey, this is for long term growth. You don't necessarily need the money. So if it goes into this product, you can grow the money tax deferred. You'll never have to pay tax on it. You don't necessarily have to worry about the volatility of that particular investment because it's going to be safe from downward volatility, right? Yep. So you can get some of the appreciation of the overall market, depending on how it does, with no downside risk. And then when you pull the money out of this life insurance contract, it will come out to you tax-free. That's the typical pitch, yeah. That's that's the, the, why the tax, this would be solution. Exactly. Right? The tax-free portion, of course, you have to remember is coming out via policy loan. There's two ways to withdraw money out of an insurance policy. Policy loan, or you can withdraw up till basis, and then everything after that would become taxable. So, again, need to understand how the money is coming out to understand the so tax So it's not as cut and dry as maybe how it's presented sometimes. I would Because it sounds pretty good, right? If I you got $300,000, Joe, why don't we put it into a policy or product and then that it can grow very much like um, uh, the S&P 500 with no downside risk. Mm -hmm. That money grows tax deferred and when you pull the money out, it will be tax free to you. I would sign up for that all day, right? But then you have to take that. That's just the tip of the iceberg. You have to take deeper looks here because you've got a cost of insurance. You're not necessarily in the S&P 500 at all. You're in long-term bonds, and they're buying call options on those. You've got premium charges, uh, caps. You've got uh, participation rates. And then when you start tr trying to take distributions from this thing, then you have to take it FIFO, right? First in, first out, which is non-taxable. You're just taking your premium dollars back out. And then you can take a loan from the overall cash value. And then if that loan is too much and all of a sudden that policy, that policy needs to be enforced for life just yeah. about. I'm going longer, right? Because we could go, it, it doesn't, if it, yes, if it, if it, if it, if it, it crashes it, it implodes then yes they're, they're basically everything that you took out via policy loans would then be taxable like it was in a qualified account so if this is done absolutely perfectly you know it could be a viable solution i would i would agree with right? that because yeah, i like absolutely. everything up front uh, I, I like you know if i have some extra excess capital if i want tax deferred growth and i want tax-free income yes but i think it's sold way too much on this concept and I've been doing this 20 years, and I've never seen it done 
appropriately. I We get policies in here, and it's like, oh, my God, I'm going to start taking money out of this thing, but I still have cost of insurance. Now I'm a lot older. How do I go about doing this? Mm-hmm. So you just absolutely have to be careful. You have to read the fine print. Yeah. You have to f- figure out exactly what your goals are. And if you need the money prior to, let's say, it, it's a long-term play. Right, you're locking Absolutely. your money up because it needs time because the cost of insurance up front is is a uh, lot higher than any other type of investment. Absolutely. All right, that's Joe Schwager, folks. Those are uh, those are that's that's all I got with insurance today. How about that? All right. Um, if you want more information, you can email us at info at purefinancial.com. Um, if you got more. Um, insurance questions. If you got annuity questions, um, we got uh, we got a guy now. We, we got a guy. I got a guy. He's trying to sell me some stuff. But we got a guy to educate you on the guy that's trying to sell you stuff. All right, that's it for us today. Thanks for listening for Big Al Clopa and I'm Joe Anderson. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Joe and Joe, and special thanks to Morgan Housel for joining us today. Check out Morgan's excellent writing at collaborativefund.com. Subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com or find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we love hearing from you. We welcome you to email your comments, thoughts, and money questions to info at purefinancial.com or drop us a voicemail at 888-994-6257. Listen next time for more Your Money, Your Wealth presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, visit purefinancial.com. And everybody do the disclosure with me. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. See you next week.